You raise the blade You make the change You rearrange me till I'm sane You lock the door Throw away the key There's someone in my head But it's not me We've had the distinct pleasure of speaking with science author Sam Keen about both of his previous bestsellers. With The Disappearing Spoon, he taught us about the periodic table of the elements. With The Violinist's Thumb, we discussed DNA and genetics. In his third outing, Mr. Keen is elected to tackle that most complex of topics, the human brain. The book is the tale of the dueling neurosurgeons, the history of the human brain as revealed by true stories of trauma, madness, and recovery. These are compelling stories, and from the many things that have gone wrong with the brain, often via injuries, a great deal of what we understand about its function has come to light. Sam Keen's been featured on Fresh Air, All Things Considered, and Radio Lab, and we're very pleased to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Sam Keen. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, I was surprised to note, Sam, that as you began, you begin this book by describing an affliction that strikes you. Uh, something that's sort of the opposite of sleepwalking, uh, called sleep paralysis. Can you start by talking about this very personal uh, condition? Sure, yeah. It's a condition I have uh, called sleep paralysis. And as you said, it's sort of the opposite of sleepwalking. What basically happens is your mind wakes up, but your body doesn't wake up. So if you imagine sort of being trapped inside a statue or something like that, that's what it feels like. Uh, you can sense things around you, and then you can hear things. Uh, you can sort of sense sunlight. You can feel things, but you can't move or anything like that. Um, it's a temporary condition, and surprisingly common. A lot of people have experienced it at least once in their lives. Uh, but sometimes some of us uh, come down with it more frequently. And I use that as sort of a way to describe um, some divisions within the brain, how the brain works a little bit because you can actually get into some sort of uh, interesting features of the brain, uh, how the brain communicates with itself, things like that. And as you said, it was sort of a personal thing that uh, helped me get interested in the brain, knowing that I had this sort of uh, flaw inside me. Sure. I'd like you to start out talking about the dueling neurosurgeons, which come from the title, and, and how uh, these, these folks took part in what might have been history's uh, first great autopsy. Yeah, it was two surgeons. One was named Andreas Vesalius. The other one was named Ambrose Paré. They were both active in Europe in the 1500s, and they were considered the best two neurosurgeons around. They were sort of the top of uh, all of the European scientists at the time. And what happened was, in the mid-1500s, the king of France, Henry II, got in a really nasty jousting accident. Basically, someone's lance broke off, and the butt of it hit him right in the face while their horses were going at full speed. So a really nasty, terrible accident. So clearly they wanted the best neurosurgeons around, so they called in Vesalius and Paré. And it was an important case because the king, from the outside, looked like he was going to be okay. His skull wasn't cracked. There wasn't an excessive amount of bleeding. You know, you couldn't see into his skull like you might think with a really horrific wound. But um, Paré and Vesalius knew from their experience that it was actually probably going to be deadly. Basically what happened is he had a massive concussion, 
it was sort of a controversial diagnosis at the time that uh, your brain could suffer an injury without the uh, without there being external signs of it. And I thought it was an interesting uh, idea for the title because in a lot of ways we're still dealing with these same problems today. You hear about, you know, professional football and hockey players suffering from concussions. You know, they look fine from the outside, but somewhere deep inside their brain there was trauma. There was something going wrong. And so they're really dealing with very modern topics, even back then at the very dawn of neuroscience, and things that uh, we learned back then are still applicable today. And as you said, it was also one of the first important autopsies in history, where they first got this idea, which is the major theme of the book, that if you look at injuries inside the brain, you can really tell a lot about how it functions. In fact, there's no, there's probably no better way to understand how the brain works than to understand what happens when an individual part of it uh, sort of goes on the blink or gets destroyed. Well, the book spends a great deal of time talking about some of the uh, the geography of the brain, and one thing that's that's I, I find very curious is some of the unusual cross-wiring that can sometimes occur. Uh, you mentioned uh, Franz Liszt berating his orchestra to play in a different color, <laughs> and some people mix up senses, uh, I guess even if they're not tripping on LSD. Can you talk about this this phenomenon? Yeah, it's a condition called uh, synesthesia. Uh, it's one of the conditions I talk about in the book that uh, will probably make some people jealous because it's actually very, very interesting. Now, these people basically have senses that are cross-wired. So if you or if they hear a certain tone, like a certain musical note, they might see a flash of color before their eyes. Or very commonly, people will see certain numbers in a certain color. So, you know, if they're doing an addition problem, it'll be sort of a rainbow of colors in front of them. And, you know, these people sort of look at the world in a different way. Uh, it's sort of been linked to artistic talent, things like that, because you sort of look at the approach to the world. Your brain is just uh, interacting with the world in a different way. And it's really an interesting um, way to look at brain anatomy, brain cross-wiring, and see how all of our senses do, on some sense, uh, on, some, on some level, I should say, um, are interconnected, and they all mix in the, sort of the same part of the brain, and they can get cross-wired in certain situations. So it's one of the fun conditions in the book to look at this and to sort of imagine your world uh, being transformed by some of this cross-wiring of the senses. And something else about wiring that I, I was quite intrigued by, uh, some examples you, you discussed about people with injuries and the like, is how some people they have trouble recognizing faces, but we've, we've learned from them that the brain and the nervous system has actually multiple ways of recognizing faces, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, this is a, a condition where, yeah, as you said, you just cannot recognize faces. So, you know, most people are on a continuum. Some of us are very good at recognizing faces. Some of us struggle a little bit. If we meet somebody in a different context or something, we might not be able to put our finger on who they are exactly. But there are some people who just cannot recognize faces, even the faces of loved ones, you know, uh, dear friends, uh, people in their own family. They simply cannot recognize them. And there are these funny stories of, you know, people asking others to wear name tags at the birthday party they throw for <laughs> themselves or something just because they cannot recognize people otherwise. Um, and the, the story you're referring to uh, was about a man who had a head injury and he was actually very good at recognizing faces. He lost the ability to recognize some other things, but he suddenly couldn't, or he was actually very good at recognizing faces. 
unless they turn the faces upside down. At that point, you know, some pe- most people struggle a little bit to recognize an upside-down face or if you, you know, change the face a little bit. But all of a sudden, this man could not recognize the face, uh, whereas other people who were much worse in daily life at recognizing the face but didn't have the same brain damage could still recognize the face. So it sort of played into the idea, as you said, that there are a couple of systems in the brain that recognize faces and that we're able to recognize faces by. It just so happened in this one man that the normal face recognition system in him was still working and was still quite good, but the secondary system that would help us recognize an upside-down face ended up damaged, and he was absolutely helpless in those situations. And something else probably we should, since we're talking about circuitry that that, that ties into this is... um, we don't think about this, but our brain circuitry sort of splits information to route it in, in multiple ways. And we've learned from people that have damage to, say, their visual cortex, and they become blind as a result of that. But it's fascinating to note that, that sometimes their circuits from the optic nerve still route to the, the limbic system, our emotional system. So they're able to read faces, they're able to read emotions on people's faces, and, and, and yet they, they are blind. Yeah, so this is people who are blind, not because of damage to the eyes, but because of damage deeper inside their brain. So their eyes can still take information in, but when it gets to their brain, they're not able to do anything with it. So they're unable to actually see anything around them on a conscious level. But as you said, the information often gets split into different parts of the brain. Some of it goes to the conscious parts. That part is broken in these people. But some of it actually goes to the unconscious parts of the brain that control things like emotion. So if someone is in front of you and they smile at you, this blind person, despite not knowing why, might smile back at you. And it's just incredible to think about, you know, a blind person having this unconscious ability to do this. Um, And they obviously can't even recognize why they're smiling, but they will do it. Another sort of unusual thing is that blind people can sometimes catch yawns from other people (laughs) because yawning, again, is a very deep, a very ancient reflex. It's below our conscious brain level. So if these people, their eyes work, the conscious part of their vision doesn't work, but the unconscious part still works you yawn in front of them, even if you, you know, show them a video of a silent yawn or something, they will yawn right back without knowing why. Well, one thing that fascinated me uh, about emotions, which play a, quite a, a large role in, in the book, what you're describing about what makes us who we are. Uh, apparently someone, uh, a surgeon named James Papes, was trying to flesh out what it is we know and don't know, and I guess he put together an essay that really kind of helped us uncover our limbic system, which, which, is, which, is, which is a pretty interesting way to approach it. Yeah, uh, he was a scientist active in the 1930s, and he was very interested in how our emotions work. And he was sort of the one who kind of put everything together. There were different scientists who studied uh, different parts of the brain, maybe involved in fear or happiness or anger, things like that. But he's the one who came in and kind of put all of these things together and said, you know, we really have this integrated circuit in our mind that helps us control information. Uh, One of the key things he did in trying to figure all this out was he looked at cases of rabies with people. Uh, People with rabies often experience a lot of rage. Um, Animals, too, the same thing. They experience a lot of rage. Or they experience irrational fear. Sometimes people with rabies are afraid of water, for instance. It hurts to swallow, and, you know, it doesn't really make sense to be afraid of water, but, you know, they're, they're suffering from this brain disease, 
and they're afraid of water. So he was able to look at rabies, look at how it worked in the brain, what parts of the brain it affected, and from that sort of piece together what things were involved in these emotion circuits in the brain. So, as you said, he's really the one who figured out how the limbic system works as a system for the first time. We are speaking with author Sam Keen about his intriguing new book, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, The History of the Human Brain, as revealed by true stories of trauma, madness, and recovery. You've got quite a few little, little funny tidbits interspersed through, through your book. Uh, one I liked was your summary of how our hypothalamus drives the four Fs of animal behavior, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and sexual congress. <laughs> but but uh, in talking about the temporal lobes of your brain, you delve into some odd effects that, that arise there um, in terms of sexual behavior when people have trouble with that portion of the brain. Yeah, the temporal lobe is really an interesting part of the brain in that it integrates a lot of information from different parts. So, for instance, you have one lobe that deals almost exclusively with vision, uh, another one that deals with almost exclusively the other senses, other sensory information. But the temporal lobe really involves language, memory, emotions, really a lot of different parts of the brain. So, you know, depending on which parts of the brain, uh, or excuse me, which parts of the temporal lobe you're talking about, you can really have some unusual effects. Um, people with temporal lobe seizures are often quite religious, for instance. They might see, you know, visions of God, or they might feel like they have ascended to heaven or something like that. Uh, the basis of that, a lot of times, is they're having seizures in their brain. Uh, another strange effect is that sometimes people with temporal lobe damage, their libidos will just go off the charts, and they'll be wanting to have sex constantly, just all of the time, because their temporal lobe, you know, is just sort of revving them up. And there's even been cases of people, uh, sometimes this happens after you remove a section of the temporal lobe. If it's mm -hmm. diseased, has a tumor or something like that, if you remove this part, people's sexual drives go into overdrive. And there have been cases of you know, spouses taking the neurosurgeon aside and asking if they can have the surgery, too, just so they can keep up with their spouse because they don't know what else to do otherwise. Well, in, in a book filled with fascinating revelations a person of a personal note, I think the one that really grabbed me was this case of Elliot, which you described. He had brain surgery. It disconnected his higher reasoning areas, if you will, from his emotional centers. And oddly enough, after this, Elliot showed that, I think he showed us all, that decision-making is less a matter of weighing information as connecting up to emotions. Uh, without his emotional links, he became quite irrational, which I think tells us that Star Trek's Mr. Spock has it all wrong. Yeah, Elliot was one of the, the sadder stories in the book. Uh, he was, you know, just a, kind of a pillar of the community, uh, father of two, uh, married his high school sweet sweetheart, uh, head of accounting at his office. He was living in, uh, I believe, Iowa at the time. But he started coming down with really bad headaches and was sort of acting strangely. Uh, the doctors went, took a look at his skull, did a brain scan, and found out they had an enormous tumor right behind his eyes. It was about the size of an orange. And after they removed the tumor, his behavior changed in really uh, odd ways. Um, in the laboratory, he seemed perfectly normal. He could still talk. Uh, he could still reason his way through any sort of problems they gave him. He seemed normal on every intelligence test, and he could discuss current events perfectly fine on all those things. But when he got into the real world, he all of a sudden had problems sort of implementing these decisions. So he might realize in some sense that it was probably a bad idea 
to take all his money and to invest it in this house flipping scheme that his shady neighbor was interested in. But the thing was, because, as you said, the reasoning parts of his brain got disconnected from the emotional parts of his brain. You know, the reason would tell him not to do it, but he really didn't care that much about doing it. So he would let himself get talked into these things um, all of the time. So he was never able to really uh, make good decisions in his daily life, even when he knew what the right answer should be, without the emotions kind of pushing him toward doing that right answer. He was someone who was very easy to manipulate and often just sort of floundered in his daily life, and his entire life ended up unraveling as a result. And there's yet another colorful example I think we probably should should mention about the disconnection between reason and emotion. You talk about uh, Capgras syndrome, people... They can't connect to family and friends. They continue to recognize them, but there's something about that, that visceral connection that, that gets lost. They feel separated, and they start theorizing the loved ones have been replaced by doubles or, or aliens. Yeah, this is uh, one of those very odd symptoms. Uh, it's a pretty rare symptom, but it's a well-recognized one. What basically happens is people think that their loved ones have been replaced by imposters. So they think someone has kidnapped their spouse and their children. Uh, one person was worried that his mailman had been kidnapped. You know, all of the people in their lives have been uh, taken away and then replaced by either actors or aliens or androids or something, whatever, you know, their fantasy tells them. And it sounds very weird. It sounds like something, um, you know, that you would think of as a psychological disturbance, you know, a purely psychological disturbance. But it actually arises after damage to very specific parts of the brain. And there are multiple people who, when they have damage to these specific parts, all of a sudden they all come down with eerily similar symptoms about loved ones being replaced. And again, as you said, it's really involved with a disconnect between emotion and reason. What happens is they recognize their, you know, um, father or something like that. They recognize that it looks like their father but they don't have any sort of emotional connection to this person anymore. Um, neuroscientists might call it a glow that you feel, you know, just sort of the good feeling you have when you're around somebody that you like, that you care for. All of a sudden, because of brain damage, these people are around people that they love, but they're not getting that glow. They're not getting that special feeling around that person. And that's such, um, you know, just a powerful, awful feeling for them that reason kind of gets thrown out the window, and they say, you know, this can't possibly be my father. I know it sounds weird, I know it sounds odd, but this can't be my father. It must be an imposter of some sort. So again, it sounds like something where you might think they're just strictly crazy, but it arises after damage to very specific parts of the brain. Another odd case, which is prominent in American history, and two figures uh, we probably should talk about, uh, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, and Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas both suffered strokes that left them both with some um, physical problems. But what's really curious and striking about them is that both men apparently stopped noticing things to their left and also were completely unaware of any disabilities. And one does see this in, in neurologic science, but it's, it's striking when, it's, when it's, it strikes a public figure like this and, and really is incapacitating. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people know that Woodrow Wilson was sort of sickly near the end of his presidency. He had a few strokes uh, suffered from while he was on a tour to kind of rev people up to the League of Nations. But he did end up suffering from some um, neurological, psychological problems. Uh, as you said, it, it sounds weird, but he couldn't notice anything to his left side. 
So if you brought a guest in and were trying to introduce him to someone on his left side, he simply would not notice that person. He could not pay attention to something on his left side. So you'd have to always bring people in on his right side. He was looking for something on his desk, like a pen. It was on the left side of his desk. It was as if it didn't exist. It just was not on his radar if it was on the left side. And, you know, again, it's one of those things that sounds very weird, but it happens to a lot of people. They just don't notice the left-hand side of the world. Uh, as you said, the same thing happened with William O. Douglas. And Douglas also had even a uh, stranger. He was convinced that there was nothing wrong with him. Uh, his entire left side was paralyzed for a while. He couldn't really move his arm, couldn't really move his leg, certainly couldn't walk. But he was convinced that there was nothing wrong with him. And, you know, people would say, you know, reporters would ask him questions about his paralysis, and he would say it was a myth. He claimed he was going to try out for the Redskins, even though, you know, he was in his 70s and had a paralyzed leg. He was just kind of completely delusional about the fact that he was suffering from these problems. So it was a sad end for a few very famous public figures, but when their brains got damaged, they simply were not able to recognize how serious their problems were. Yeah, as I recall, Douglas was even going to try and show up again at the Supreme Court as if he was going to be like an auxiliary uh, justice. Very, very strange. Yeah, his, um, the other justices couldn't force him to resign, but they finally kind of convinced him to step down. But he kept showing up. He kept commandeering clerks. He was calling himself the Tenth Justice <laughs> as if he got to cast votes and things. Wow. And finally, they just had to get him out of there. Yeah. Well, all of your books have wonderful notes sections where you're able to elaborate on some of the things that are, that are in the text. And, and what struck me about this book was that uh, you asked the reader that, uh, that should they forget everything in the book, they, they should remember that nothing in the brain is strictly localized, which I think is a good caveat to all the discussions about, you know, which part does this or that. Yeah, that's one of the things, one of the two things I feel like I really learned a lot uh, about in the brain. It's kind of a convenient shorthand sometimes to talk about, you know, this spot in the brain controls our fear response. This spot controls language or memory or whatever. But if you really look at how the brain works, there's no one spot that controls any of these complicated actions or complicated talents. It's really large systems in the brain all working together to give you these talents. So there is no one language spot. There's no memory spot. It involves a lot of the brain. And that's really important because when people do suffer damage to certain parts of the brain, um, you can tell what parts are damaged by, say, how their language is affected or how their memory is affected, which parts of their speech or their fear response are affected, things like that. And it really gives you a better sense of the brain being... You know, not this sort of these like little individual parts barely working together, but really a deeply integrated system. And and as a sort of a corollary to all that, I just want to just say amen to one thing you mentioned in the book was that uh, that uh, you plea for readers to be skeptical of news stories about brain scans showing where some attribute of the mind is located exactly. Yeah, you hear you know these sort of bad MRI studies sometimes <laughs> about how they found a god spot in the brain or. They can tell what political party you like just by scanning your brain. And, you know, you really have to be careful trying to, or claiming to read people's thoughts based just what's on their brain scan. The brain is a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more that goes into even the simplest thoughts we have. And, you know, brain scanners are wonderful, wonderful tools, but 
on some level, they are fairly crude compared to the speed that things go on in the brain. So do be careful when you are, you know, diving into these studies that are supposedly revealing all of your thoughts on a brain scan. Indeed. Well, I'd like to close with uh, something you closed the book with, probably the most famous case in medical history regarding damage to the brain. Phineas Gage. Mr. Gage survived an iron rod being blown up through his skull and did amazingly well, first of all, that he lived, but that he appeared to have few ill effects and, and, and was able to earn a living for many years after that. But you note, people described him as a changed man. As you close the book, you talk about how, you know, who we are depends upon the sum of our parts in ways that we're, we're still struggling to understand. Yeah, Phineas Gage um, is one of the uh, most interesting cases in neuroscience history. He's probably the most famous case of brain damage in history. He's one that almost everyone learns about in an intro-psychology class or a neuroscience class. He's the big name in neuroscience. Unfortunately, over the years, this real story of Phineas Gage has kind of been distorted. I think a lot of people learn an incorrect view of him. They think he turned into a criminal or he started brawling or drinking or doing all these terrible things when actually there's very little evidence that those kind of things happen. And if you really look at the case of Phineas Gage, as I explained in the last chapter, um, you really find out that there's a good chance he actually recovered somewhat and got somewhat of a normal life back. And that's important because I think it's a really powerful message of hope. One thing we've really learned about the brain in the past few years, or the past few decades, I should say, is that the brain is really resilient. It can recover its faculties to an amazing degree. Even someone like Phineas Gage might have gotten a somewhat normal life back. And it's a very powerful message of hope, I think, a lot better than the attitude that we had for a long time, which was that if you suffered brain damage, things were kind of over for you. So a lot of these tales, even when they're tales about injuries, end up being tales about recovery, courage, resiliency, things like that. There is a very powerful message of hope uh, running as an undercurrent of the whole book. Sam Keen's previous works were both named to Amazon's top five science books of the year. We think he's likely to get a threefer with The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, The History of the Human Brain as Revealed by True Stories of Trauma, Madness, and Recovery. Sam, I know you'll be making some appearances at Kepler's in Menlo Park on Thursday, May 22nd, and Books, Inc. Opera Plaza in San Francisco uh, Friday, May 23rd. Uh, Maybe some people listening will want to attend. I hope so. Is there a website we can refer people to? Yeah, uh, it's just samkeen.com, S-A-M-K-E-A-N.com, and they can read an excerpt of the book there as well. Well, Sam Keith, thank you so much for speaking with us again. Okay, thanks for having me. 